Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Hello, everybody. It's Ali Milani on Fubar Radio with another edition of Politics Uncensored. We're talking general election today um, after the expected results tonight of the Mid Bedfordshire by election, the Tamworth by election. Uh, we've got a couple more by elections likely around the corner, including Blackpool South. Um, and another one in Wellingborough. We've already had Uxbridge and South Ryslip. We've had 101 by-elections. Uh, we might as well have a damn general election at this point. Uh, but one of the things we want to talk about is how this system works. Uh, we have many people in the country who assume our politics, I think, are similar to that of the United States, where we have a fixed uh, election periods, um, who might not know who gets to call a general election. And we want to speculate a little bit today about when that general election might come. Uh, and what the context around that is, what are the chances that Sunak and the Conservatives have, what are the chances that Starmer and the Labour Party have, uh, and the Liberal Democrats are always there for a stunt to, like, kick over some wall or something like that, which they love to do. Um, But before we get into the details of the general election and when it might come, we have a returning guest, Councillor Nabila Moulana, Labour Councillor in Sheffield and Chair of Young Labour. Nabila, how are you? Thank you, Ali. Thank you for having me on the programme. Thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, Like I said, we're talking about uh, elections today, so I'm going to come to that soon. But before we get into that, uh, I want to ask you about Peter Bone, who has today been stripped of the Conservative Party whip after the MP was found to have bullied and harassed a member of staff and exposed his genitals near their face. The chief whip, Simon Hart, made the decision the day after a parliamentary watchdog recommending Bowen be suspended from the Commons for six weeks, paving the way for a possible by-election. Bowen has denied all the allegations, we should say, and vowed to continue representing his constituency in Wellingborough in Northamptonshire. There is a serious cultural problem in Westminster, is there not? Because we keep hearing about uh, sexual harassment and abuse cases, uh, inappropriate conduct, MPs consistently under investigation, having to leave Parliament. Is our politics really as dirty as it looks from the outside? I think it's really hard to look at the way politics has taken shape over the last however many years and to conclude that actually, you know, Westminster's fine, everything's going as it should do, these are the people who are right to represent this country. I think it's incredibly concerning to see the, I suppose, culture that people speak about um speak of in mm-hmm. Westminster that that seems to exist and you know I remember I think it was a Labour MP um who tweeted that when she first got elected to Parliament um you know she was a young woman who just you know got into Parliament and she was told which members of Parliament she shouldn't ever be alone in a room with and you know it's clear that this is an open secret where parliamentarians know which of their colleagues. So she had been advised that there are. So she'd been advised that. I mean, the assumption is that she'd been advised that there are members of parliament who she might not be safe around alone in a room. Absolutely, and that she should avoid and you know shouldn't be alone with. And I think this is terrifying. Where, where sending people into parliament where we know that there are other people who clearly mm. aren't fit to be in there. And clearly a culture and a culture in Parliament where people know it's happening and are either Mm -hmm. covering it up or not talking about it, not raising it. And these people are allowed to walk around on the state, represent people and make others feel more unsafe. 
No, absolutely. And I, I do think it's incredibly disappointing to see mm-hmm. um, from whichever party, really. And I want to talk, I want to ask you a little bit because you, you're the chair of Young Labour, uh, a councillor in Sheffield, uh, a woman, visibly Muslim woman. Um, how difficult are these spaces for you? Because I felt it myself and, you know, Muslim women specifically find have some of the hardest times in terms of the accessibility of these spaces, the safeness of these spaces and whether, you know, their participation. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, just being a visibly Muslim woman in politics uh, and how difficult that is given the system and the things we're reading about? Absolutely. I mean, I do, again, think it's... <clears throat> So, excuse me, um, an open secret of, I suppose, the difficulties that Muslim women face in politics, in any political space. Um, I think Opsana Begum is actually a very good example of just how difficult it can be to be a Muslim woman in politics, um, you know, visibly Muslim, but also I think a Muslim woman with very left-leaning politics, which, you know, we've seen the treatment of Opsana um, from all across the political class and Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly hard for for me to sit here and tell other young people um, especially other young Muslim women you know you should aspire to engage in politics and you should aspire to um, engage in political life whether that's in parliament or in other spaces because quite frankly you feel like you're you're pushing them into to invest time Mm. and energy and you know a lot of emotion into spaces that really don't want them there or want them there in a very limited capacity. Yeah, or just throw and abuse at them. They... I mean, you mentioned the Absana Begum um, case, I think, or Absana Begum's experience, the MP for Poplar and Limehouse, first hijab-wearing MP in Parliament. At Labour Party conference, it was reported only by Navara Media, I think, that she had to leave because she didn't feel safe because of the amount of threats that she was getting. Absolutely, and I think that's a massive failing, actually. Um, I mean, what kind of scandal is that that no part? one else reported that other than Navara? And I think it's because it's almost accepted, right? It's accepted that there are some people who are going to find politics and political spaces more difficult than other people. And mm. it's just accepted as a given that these well, spaces of aren't for the them. likes of Sara Sultana and Absana Begum and, you know, the tens of other, um, well, yeah. few other Muslim MPs there are. Yeah. Uh, like, of course, they're going to find politics different. Sadly, that's just the nature of the yeah. world we live in. Yeah. And I think there's a real lack of accountability yeah. Um, from parliament and, the, and from the different political parties of the kind of culture they create and allow and an acceptance of it right because accept. I've I've spoken to like you said there's there's a few Muslim MPs the likes of Naz Shah Afzal Khan uh, Yasmin Qureshi like you said Zara Absana others and uh, whether it's Muslim MPs or councillors uh, particularly women as well or women MPs as well uh, you know we've I've, I've dealt with the Labour uh, Women's Network as well and the amazing work that they do there's just an acceptance that, well, this is how it is and you've got to either be a really tough woman to get through it or politics isn't for you. That's got to be some sort, like, that's really tough to take because then if a young person comes and asks you as the chair of Young Labour, a young woman, a woman, uh, or a Muslim woman or a Muslim in general, is politics worth it? Can you say yes? I think I have actually had young women come up to me and ask me, um, you know, really excitedly saying, oh, you're, you're a counsellor, what's that like? Or, oh, you're involved in all these spaces, what's that like? And I think when I first got elected, I'd, you know, talk to them about how great um, it is to have more people involved and how the only way we can change it is by being involved. But I think mm. the longer I've sort of carried on being involved in politics, and this isn't to put anyone off who's listening, but mm-hmm. I suppose you feel this compulsion to to have to be honest. 
Yeah. And even reflecting on my own experiences, I would find it really hard. Yeah, to I, 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 look at a young Muslim and say, "Yep, completely go for it." And this I, is, I, is, I, I had that. I was really scared of, at the beginning to talk about like the death threats that we got, the abuse that we got, because I didn't want people to be afraid to get involved, and I knew that we needed more people to get involved. But there's an element of it now where I've reached the position of. We can't not talk about it because that's how the culture, that's how the norms are created. That's how it's allowed that that woman that you talked about, that MP, was told, don't be alone in a room with this guy and this guy and this guy. That It's that culture of not talking about it that's allowed us to get um, where we are. Uh, and I really do hope you keep fighting because I'm sure <clears throat> there are lots of young women uh, in the Labour Party that are looking up to you and the amazing work that you do. I'm going to move on to the next story, um, and that's laughing gas. That's these little canisters that you might have seen um uh on the streets uh and they're they're a drug that's used um uh, mainly uh by young people but uh people across the board as well and the story is that possessing laughing gas will be made illegal in three weeks with those who repeatedly misuse the drug facing up to two years in prison and dealers of nitrous oxide will face up to 14 years behind bars the home officer said the ban will come into force on november 8th and will make nitrous oxide a controlled class c drug under the misuse of drugs act 1971. it is one of the most commonly used recreational drugs among young people it comes after mps voted overwhelmingly to have it categorized as a class c drug by 404 votes to 36 last month Critics have previously warned against a ban, saying it could stop users seeking medical help, but the government says it is clamping down on antisocial behaviour and drug-taking in public. I believe the government actually went against the medical advice for once on this, where they, they were asked about um, whether this had significant uh, health concerns, and obviously if used in large quantities and frequently uh, there are health concerns, uh, but the medical advice was that it it wasn't of huge concern in in terms of its its the the medical side effects. And the government went against that advice, saying they're taking the antisocial behaviour into account. What's your reaction to the banning of laughing gas? I think about it like it. You know, it's clearly something that people feel quite strongly about in terms of like amongst young people. And I think it's part of a wider conversation about the government's attitude to. Um, recreational drugs but also their attitude towards antisocial behavior and young people in general whereas mm. if we were to you know if their main focus was antisocial behavior if they were worried about um, young people and the you know the things they get up to essentially I think the government would have invested more in young people and in the spaces that engage young people in other sort of activities and what we have seen from this government for the last 13 years consistently starting straight from David Cameron is cuts after cuts after cuts in the regions of millions of pounds um, to youth services. You know, we completely decimated youth services in the billions. We funneled it all into one specific program called the National Citizen Service. Um, and that was more or less the end of it. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the impact this has had over 13 years. My own youth club turned into a food bank. Um, and I think actually that was one of the, the biggest drivers for me to get into politics. But what we have seen in you know the area like mine, which I represent, it's one of the poorest. It's actually the most deprived ward in the city. And young people are desperate for some kind of provision. Um, and instead, we're having to, you know, instead of having a properly funded youth service, instead of having properly funded interventions, public health support, um, public health information, what we have instead is services trying their absolute most to deliver something for young people, whilst the government is constantly showing them the door every time they ask for support. Um, so I think this has to be looked at in, I suppose, it's, 
much wider landscape of government cuts yeah it also it also feels like um westminster politics and not just conservatives but westminster politics in general just has one knee-jerk reaction to drug policy and that's ban it and police it and that hasn't worked for 20 years i don't know why they think it'll work in the next 20 years but are they just out of ideas on how to deal with drugs because the the sort of cause i the quote-unquote war on drugs in america didn't work um the illegalization and and policing of drugs as a as a singular tactic clearly has not worked in the uk um do they just have no other ideas on how to deal with it or is it just looking tough to the public in an election year i do think it's a bit of both i think we see um particularly in run-up to elections where political parties tend to have very knee-jerk um responses to to events um but i do also think that what we have seen consistently um and sometimes from you know across the benches is a real lack of ideas and i suppose a lack of political will and courage to to talk about something differently to try out something new mm-hmm. even when the lines are peddling um you know there's years and years of evidence that it's failed so i do think it's a lack of political courage actually which is a yeah. shame when considering the multiple crises we're currently facing yeah and uh, we'll come on to the final story and that's the theme of today's show which is voting and elections so voting has opened in mid bedfordshire and tamworth by elections the by elections which will decide who replace re- re- replaces who pronounces replaces replaces uh, nadine doris in mid bedfordshire who stood down in august and chris pincher in tamworth who stood down in september um nabila let's have a bit of fun one word to describe nadine doris Keep it PG. Actually, you don't have to keep it PG. We're on uncensored here. Awful. Uh, I would have gone with idiot, but I'm not going to make you do Chris Pincher. Um, there are 13 candidates on the ballot paper in mid-Bedfordshire and nine in Tamworth. Tamworth's by-election will see a battle between the Conservatives and Labour. Labour held the Staffordshire seat. Uh, I haven't been drinking, I promise. Labour held the Staffordshire seat between 1997 and 2010 when Pincher was first elected. elected. Mid-Bedfordshire has been controlled by the Tories since 1931. Nadine Doris won the seat five times since being elected in 2005. At the last election, Miss Doris won uh, with a majority of 24,000. Obviously, these are two fairly safe um, Conservative seats. If Labour were to win this, it's a massive, massive signal as to what's coming in the general election. Absolutely, and I think... You know, there is a real hope amongst Labour supporters that um, Labour will be able to make two gains tonight. Um, you know, we've seen even in um, Rutherglen and Hamilton West with um, Michael Shanks, you know, winning back a seat that was previously held by Labour, but has been held by the SNP for the last few years. And there does seem to be, I suppose, a lot of um, will from the public to give Labour a chance mm-hmm. after 13 years of the Tories making an absolute mess of it. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, only uh, hope as the Labour Party will be making to to gains tonight. Well, when I think one of the things that we're going to be speaking about later is just the amount of by elections we've had recently. I mean, we've had we've got Mid Bedfordshire now, Tamworth. We'll have probably Blackpool South uh, up for by election as well. Maybe Welling Wellingborough as well. We had Uxbridge and South as well as other places. Um, surely the time is now to just call a general election, get it over with. I mean, we're almost doing a general election every like a year-long general election now um where do you think people are particularly young people in their sort of will for a general election i think any sort of polling has shown that young people um who vote are likely to vote labor um you know 13 years of tory of, of tory government has done absolutely nothing for them actually 
and any issue that we had in 2010 has only been worsened and so I I suppose I'm confident that young people who turn up to the ballot box will be voting for more progressive parties mm-hmm. um whether that's Labour or whether that's um, any other party who they consider to be progressive that are the Tories um and that's and, the you know, sense you're getting from young for people. general election sooner rather than later, but I suppose only time yeah. will tell. Well, unfortunately, John Rental uh, in the Independent thinks that it will it could go on until January, twenty twenty five. And the fun fact I'm being told is that there have been sixteen by elections held in the current parliament, which might be uh, a record. It's felt like a hundred and sixteen, uh, but you know it, whether it's January twenty twenty five, whether it's May twenty twenty four, or autumn twenty twenty four. We know. One is coming and the Conservatives are in big, big trouble. Uh, thank you once again. That was Councillor Nabila Molana, Labour Councillor in Sheffield and Chair of Young Labour. Thank you so much uh, for coming back uh, and speaking to us about the headlines in this week's uh, Unwrapped. Like I said, today's show uh, is centred around an article that we saw by John Rental, who will be joining us later on in the show, uh, where he has written Vote Labour on Thursday and get a general election in January 2025. Uh, and that got a conversation going here at FUBAR about... You know, when can general elections be held? How long does it take? What are the rules around it? How come the Conservatives can just call it whenever they like or Rishi call it whenever they like? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, We'll be speaking to Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary, uh, in a moment. And then we'll have John John Rental later on from The Independent talking about his article. Uh, But knowing that the last general election was in December 2019... The conversation that we were having here was um, when is it likely to be? It's a little bit strange, I think, for people because they're used to sort of an American politics system or European politics where it's a set point of time. Uh, And so that's what we're going to get into with Professor uh, of Politics at Queen Mary, Tim Bale. Uh, I spoke to him earlier today uh, and he was really, really interesting in unpacking what the rules are, what the constitutional rules are, what the statutory rules are. Uh, So do pay attention to what he's saying. Another fun fact in this interview, obviously we spoke earlier today, um, and my producers tried to kill me during this interview and roast me in the studio rather than turning the AC on, the heater was turned on. So if you listen carefully, about three minutes into the interview, you might realize that I think I'm having a stroke only about 10 minutes later to figure out that the AC has been put on hot or something and um, I'm dying in the interview. Nonetheless, an amazingly (laughs) interesting interview uh, with Tim from Queen Mary. You'll hear from him after this. Fubar Radio presents Access All Areas. We have the absolute icon, mm-hmm. legend, Janice Dickinson. I'm here. Do you still enjoy doing reality shows or do you now see it as more of like a part of your job that you like have to do? I do I do really enjoy it. I do I don't enjoy the actuality of, of eating fish eyeballs. <laughs> well, yeah. There's that side of the yeah. Or vagina of cow. Yeah. But you do like the sort of social I, side, do you? Like just the the social know. side was fantastic. Just getting to know people mm. and uh, sleeping with people and eating with people when we didn't really have enough food. Politics uncensored. This week we have Natalie Balmain, winner of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister. We do have a serious problem with the standard of our public servants and the behaviour they display, both in office and in ministerial office. No, absolutely, one hundred. We're an embarrassment. Yeah, you know, no. we're, we're a, a nation that once purported to be world leaders. But now with the people we have in charge, we can't even lead ourselves. Well, we are leading the world in terms of idiots and, and clowns. Please do. Back in the day when it used to be like 
fashionable or uh, it was it was the thing to do when you'd go on Facebook. Yeah, and you'd be like, oh, I'm like in a relationship. What was the other one? It was, um, it's complicated. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's uh, in a relationship with yeah. or it's, it's complicated. complicated. But then what you used to do, you used to pop up on the feed. So you'd be sitting there. Yeah. Uh, and then in your feed, it would be, um, I don't know, Jess, whoever is now single. So you'd like that one. Or do, poke them. Did you poke them? And then you'd give you give them a little poke. poke. Yeah. yeah. Give a little virtual poke. Yeah. Um, just to go, I see you're single now, babe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, oh, Facebook were great, weren't it? You're listening to Food Bar Radio. Food Bar Radio. Food Bar Radio. Food Bar Radio. Okay, as we have two more by-elections in Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth coming up today uh, with everyone's favourite MP, Nadine Doris, uh, and everyone's not-so-favourite MP, Chris Pincher, seeing the final door, uh, we are talking about general elections. Uh, How do they work? When can we call one? When, for God's sake, can we stop having by-elections and have a full-on-fledged general election and joining me to talk about just that is tim bale professor of politics at queen mary university tim thank you so much for joining us please enlighten us when are we going to get a damn general election i think probably the most likely date is going to be the autumn of 2024 probably uh, october or november uh, rishi sunak could if he wanted to go right the way through to january 20. 20- 25, believe it or mm-hmm. not, and some people have speculated on May next year, but I think autumn is the most likely date. And so one of the one of the questions I think folks will have is they'll be used to democracy and, and elections, qu- kind of like what they see in America and in other countries, where there's a fixed point in time, you get four years or five years, depending on what country you're in, and you know that November, for example, next year is going to be US uh, election time. How do general elections work in this country and how come we don't know when they might be? Well, we used to, actually, up until uh, a couple of years ago, they had to be held every five years. Although, actually, what happened was that Parliament found a way of getting round that and calling elections early. Um, Before that, and it's the case now as well, because that legislation has been repealed, uh, prime ministers essentially have uh, the, the say over when to call an election. All they need to do is... Uh, get the agreement of their cabinet to call an election and uh, go to the uh, king now and the king will uh, allow them to dissolve parliament and they can have an election. Uh, There is a maximum, however, of around five years. So that's why in the end, Rishi Sunak will have to go in January 2025, even if, uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily want to. And so how does that work? Say, uh, so it's entirely up to the ruling party, up to a maximum, like you said. Does there have to be a vote in parliament or does the cabinet just agree it and then that's it? No, the cabinet just has to agree it, really. And to be honest, even the cabinet very rarely has that much say in it. It's normally really very much up to the prime minister and his or her closest advisers. The cabinet are normally told, um, I guess they could revolt, if you like, and say, (laughs) uh, no, you know, you're not going to do that and then depose the prime minister. But actually, that never seems to have happened. Uh, It's really up to the prime minister. So from a sort of technical legal point, is it the king that actually calls 
a general election on the advice of the Prime Minister. Is that yes, how it works? Yes, I mean, technically that's the case. It's the King that uh, gives um, permission to the Prime Minister to dissolve Parliament and to hold a general election. So, mm-hmm. yes, in the end, I guess it is up to the monarch. But the, uh, <laughs> there's no precedent um, in, in modern times, anyway, for the monarch um, refusing a dissolution. I mean, technically it might be possible if you thought that the Prime Minister was you know, trying to pull a fast one in some way, but it'd be yeah. very, very unlikely. Or if the Prime Minister was just off their head and unsu- unsuitable for office. But we did have Boris Johnson. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to move, I'm going to, I'm not going to make you answer that question. Um, so you mentioned that there's, there's limits, the, the five-year limit. Where does that come from? Because, because I, I, I mean, technically the five-year limit ten ends next year, not in 2025. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that is simply because uh, it's, it's, I think, five years and sort of one or so months. Uh, it, it really depends on when the election is actually called, um, mm-hmm. because then you have a certain period of time between the election being called and the election right. being held. And that's why it can go into January. Um, actually, historically, it used to be um, seven years, but for the, the, the greater part, really, of the, the 20th century anyway, it's been five years. Mm-hmm. And that's just really been the... the, the and is that, is that statutory? Is that set in law? Or is that, uh, uh, is that a sort of understood thing that the king will intervene after five years? Well, I mean, <laughs> so much of our constitution is is not necessarily laid down in statute, but the, the, the five years plus however long it takes to, to hold the campaign is essentially a, a, a legal requirement, yes. When you say essentially, um, I mean, just because we've seen so many precedents broken uh, and we've had a really wild 10 years in British politics, I, I'm just trying to see if there's a slither of a chance where it doesn't no, even happen in 2025. There's, there's, there's no, no way that Rishi Sunak could delay it beyond January 2025. I can guarantee that. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking to John Rental uh, later today, and he's written an article uh, where he is stating that uh, if Labour were to win tonight, that we might see the Conservatives hold on as long as they can, given you know they will know that they're on borrowed time and that might push to 2025. What's your view on that? Uh, yes, I mean, I think... You know, obviously, if they were to suffer a setback uh, of losing both um, of the the by-elections, that is going to put any idea that some Conservatives might have of going early uh, into the bin, as it were. Um, I I think it's, you know, unlikely anyway that they would want to go early. I mean, the precedent is that Prime Ministers hold on for as long as they possibly can, really, hoping Mm -hmm. that something will turn up if they are in, you know, a position of of being behind in the polls, um, Mm -hmm. as Rishi Sunak is right now. Uh, I mean, I think the real question is whether he would want to go all the way to January 2025 or whether he would want to at least preserve some freedom of manoeuvre and some illusion, if you like, that he's in control by mm-hmm. uh, holding the election in, in October or November. I mean, the problem with January, of course, is that A, the campaign would stretch across Christmas, which probably wouldn't do uh, any government any favours. We've already had Christmas cancelled uh, mm-hmm. by COVID on a couple of occasions. I'm not sure people would want it effectively um, spoiled for them by a, a general election. Uh, and and if you see it from the point of view of the parties, I think that, you know, they would regard um, that Christmas week as being a kind of lost week uh, as far as campaigning was concerned and really wouldn't want to give up that, that time. So I, I suspect that uh, uh, that plus the fact that I guess, um, you know, going all the way to January 2025 would, would make it very obvious that the government was just hanging on and hanging on and hanging mm-hmm. on means that they are likely to go in the autumn.
Yeah, and and the rumors in Westminster. I mean, I I for my sins was in Westminster recently and met again for my sins parliamentarians, and and the consensus seemed to be that they thought it would be May twenty twenty four, largely because the Conservatives won't want to be hammered in a local election, which often happens to the party of government, and then go back to the country a couple of months later. That the recovery time will be next to nil. What's your view on that sort of theory that's hanging around in Parliament? Well, I mean. <laughs> Uh, I, I think governments very rarely cut their losses, if you like. I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it, it is normal for governments just to hang on as long as they possibly can, hoping, as I say, that something will turn up. I mean, you could argue that, you know, were they a, a kind of rational poker player, if you like, then they would cut their losses and, and go early and hope to, to perhaps to stem those losses and, and avoid, as you say, a, a drubbing in the, the local elections. But as you know, I mean, I don't need to tell you, politicians are eternally optimistic <laughs> and sometimes to the point of delusional. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, many conservatives, even though I, I suspect in their heart of hearts, they probably think it's yeah. all over now. I mean, you, still, yeah, you don't have to tell me about the delusions of politicians. Someone yeah. in this studio once thought he was going to be a prime minister. That exactly. Did, I mean, that still, didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I think some conservatives still harbour the hope that yeah. you know, the Labour vote is soft. Uh, Keir Starmer isn't that popular. The economy will come right. They'll be able to show that they're stopping the boats. Uh, mm -hmm. Waiting lists will go down. And, you know, uh, Bob's your uncle. You know, they might just pull it off. And what's your view on that? Do you think there is a chance of Tory recovery? Well, I mean, there's always a chance, but I think the fundamentals uh, are against them. Uh, I mean, if we look at, for example, the economy, I mean, it's growing very slowly. Real wages are just about rising now, but not by very much. People aren't better off now than they were, you know, four or five years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. If you look at the state of the health service, it appears, you know, to be falling apart in some places. And certainly people, for example, are finding it very difficult to get a GP appointment. Waiting times are very long in A&E. Uh, waiting lists generally for elective surgery are uh, very long. Uh, and then if you look at perceptions of leaders, um, you know, Rishi Sunak is down at the kind of levels that Boris Johnson was um, before he was forced out. And that's with all the scan without mm. all the scandals of Partygate. So if you put the economy, the state of the NHS, uh, people's views of leaders together, uh, I don't think they bode very well for the Conservatives. But they have got some advantages, right? I mean, they've got the uh, a lot of the print media, of course, is still very much pro pro Tory, and mm -hmm. although fewer and fewer people actually read those newspapers, albeit you know some people read them online, uh, they do influence broadcasters' agendas. So you know that might help a, a, a little bit. Um, they've also got, I guess, uh, you know the the sort of anti woke uh, green crap type appeals, which you know may mobilise their base uh, a little bit. Uh, so that goes for them. And then there's that kind of household economy meme, by which I mean, you know, people thinking that the nation's finances are like those of a household and, mm -hmm. and therefore, you know, we, we shouldn't spend too much. We shouldn't borrow too much. And and that might mean that voters forgive the Conservatives for not actually, um, you know, turning on the taps as far as tax cuts or indeed, yeah. you know, spending. That, that, that economy compared to household expenditures and, and spending often reminds me of an old Aaron Sorkin quote where mm. in one of his pieces he says, if you compare you balancing your budget at home to the government balancing their budget in, in for them, Washington, it's like comparing driving to the supermarket to landing on the moon. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, that's a really, really good example that often comes to my mind. Um, so I guess the, the, question, the other question I have that, that 
you know listeners might not be fully aware of and that's part of what we try and do in this segment is to kind of uh, unravel some of the, the the myths and um the 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 parts of our politics that that folks might not know and that's the electoral math and the way that our system works the first past the post system that could possibly benefit the conservatives could it not because you could end up with 44% of the national vote but because of a first past the post system where you need a certain number of MPs to win a majority we might have a hung parliament we might have a slither labor majority or the tories might hang on no, that's quite right. I mean, you know, uh, another thing that favours the Conservatives is, generally speaking, the electoral system. Um, you know, we have to remember that Labour got very badly beaten in 2019 and it needs a, a, a huge um, increase in its vote and the Conservatives vote to go down quite a lot in order to actually get a, you know, a one seat majority. As far as the workings of the first past the post system uh, are concerned, I mean, the Conservatives are at an advantage because their vote is if you like, more efficiently spread. So they've got more voters in, if you like, the smaller towns, uh, which, you know, make up, you know, quite a lot of constituencies uh, in Parliament, whereas Labour's vote tends to pile up in, you know, bigger cities uh, and and therefore to some extent is quote unquote wasted. Um, so Labour really does need to improve its vote in those smaller towns, not necessarily mm-hmm. so much the rural areas, but, you know, some of the suburbs uh, as well in order to be able to turn things around. And Labour needs to win uh, quite a lot of seats back in the, the Midlands and the North in, able to, in order to enable to, it to do that. And Scotland. But also usefully could win some seats in Scotland. And, it, and if it can win sort of 20, 25 seats in Scotland, that will make a big difference, I think, to Labour's chances of actually forming a majority government. And I think Labour will be uh, sort of uh, will have a bounce after the Scottish by-election victory as well. And they'll think that they can do that um, in Scotland. But I think it's important for folks to know that, you know, uh, you you might see Labour with a 20 point lead in nationally. But it is places like Mid Bedfordshire where they need to make ground um, and and, you know, they are trying to pull back from from a defeat in uh, yes, in, in particular, those so-called red wall seats that the, the Conservatives won in the North and the Midlands mm-hmm. um, in, in 2019. If Labour can flip some of those back, um, you know, it will be a, a big advantage. But I mean, generally speaking, elections are won and lost in this country, you know, in, in the Midlands very often, the West Midlands yeah. and the East Midlands. Uh, and that's where, you know, we, we need to look, I guess, on, a, on election night. If, if Labour are flipping some of those seats, uh, I think it will be a lot easier. Um, I mean, the Conservatives, I think, you know, if they're if they're as far behind on polling day as they are now, they've absolutely yeah. no chance of, 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 yeah. of bringing. And I, before before I let you go, I just want to ask you about the boundary changes as well, because mm. there was a boundary review. If you could quickly yeah. tell folks what that is and what impact that might have. Yes. I mean, uh, in contrast to the United States, where actually the political parties have a lot of say in how um, the, the districts um, are uh, carved up. In Britain, we have an independent boundary commission that reports every so often and tries to uh, effectively equalise the number of people in each constituency at around 70 odd thousand. Um, it, it doesn't work exactly, but you know they do their best. And that takes account of population movements over time. So for example, you know, movement out of cities, 
uh, might mean that the city seats are, are now you know smaller than they should be. So sometimes they're amalgamated. Some of the, the more suburban seats might need to be split in two, for example, to create uh, another seat. Uh, but that is a totally independent process. The parties can um, make appeals to the boundary commission if they feel that something's been unfair. But that does mean, on occasion, that you know MPs representing one seat, which may have been quite safe the previous election, because it's actually been changed by the boundary commission, might mean that it's more marginal uh, this time around. And it's been calculated that the changes that have been made between the last election and this election probably give the Conservatives an advantage of about, you know, six, seven, ten seats maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, if they're going to get absolutely walloped, as it looks as if they might be by the Labour Party at the next election, then that isn't going to make enough difference for them. All right. That was Professor Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University. Tim, I'm going to have you back on next year and we can see how how our guesses uh, have fared. Thank you so much, uh, Tim, for joining us. Uh, coming up next, we've got John Rental, Chief Political Commentator for The Independent. His uh, article has sparked my interest in the general election, when it might come, if it's May, if it's autumn, if it is indeed in January 2025. We'll hear from him after the break. FUBAR Radio presents... All areas. And we are joined now by our lovely guest, James Johnson, celebrity hairdresser. How are you, James? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. What was Mel B like then? I oh, used the to best. be a spice boy. The best energy. Did you sing to her? Oh, no, to... I can't sing. I'm nor can I, but I still but I remember don't. the job got cancelled. I went to wherever she was staying in London, it got cancelled. And whoever she was living with made us a Victoria sponge cake. So the job got cancelled, we all sat around the table eating cake. I got in the car <laughs> and, and I was like, I've just sat with a spice girl eating Victoria sponge. Oh, noshing a bit of Vicky Sponge. <laughs> Nick Helm and the Daniel Metcalf Fan Club. We are joined in the studio now by professional comedian Brett Goldstein. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Brett? Uh, I'm very grateful to be here with you two. If you could dig someone up and fuck them. Gene Kelly and Cary Grant, right? Not Cary, there's not much time. <laughs> if I could dig up Gene Kelly, I'd say, could we do it, dance? I've got the shovel in my boot. <laughs> In this scenario, is he still dead when you dig him up or does he come out? Does he come to life? Is he a rotten corpse or is he... That's my club. Dating or going on dates when you were like a teenager was always quite fun though. Do you know what I mean? I remember going on dates to like the cinema or you'd go shopping like shopping centres, wouldn't you? I think, if anything, they were... Maybe maybe this just says about life and where it is, but I used to get really excited, like, more excited than I do now. Like, the thought of going to meet someone in a park, a boy, it was like, oh, my fucking God, what trainers am I going to wear? Are my trainers clean? Am I going to plait my hair? It was like... It, the thought that would go through my head just to meet one person, whereas now... You know, you might meet someone on the way home from work and it's like the, the effort, you're still making an effort, but it's like, yeah, I can fit you in. It is it's completely different. You're listening to Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. We're back on Politics Uncensored and this week we are talking about elections, by-elections, general elections uh, and we've just had Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University uh, joining us um, and he has explained how these general elections work, how our, our constitution works but this all really started based on a article by John Rental who will be joining us in just a minute in which he titles Vote Labour on Thursday and Get a General Election in January 2025. Now, 
most commentators and uh, journalists have speculated that the general election will almost certainly either be May next year or autumn next year. And John speculates that it may be as late as 2025, depending uh, on the results uh, of tonight. Uh, and the view from uh, that, that John makes in his article is if Labour have a successful night tonight in Mid-Bedfordshire and in Tamworth, both of whom were seen as safe Labour seats uh, prior to uh, this by-election round, uh, then some Tories might be fearful of, of holding an election uh, quite so soon, certainly in May, uh, and particularly later on um, in autumn, and may try and hold on for as long as they physically can, which, as Tim explained, would be in January 2025. Now, that comes with it all sorts of uh, concerns. Uh, a winter general election is often very, very difficult and hurts turnout. Uh, a campaigning period that might go through Christmas would be particularly difficult. Um, and obviously, it would mean that an election is happening at the latest possible time, which would make the Tories look particularly weak. Um, now, let's bear in mind that to win Mid-Bedfordshire today, Labour would need a 19% swing, um, which, given the national polls, is not beyond Labour, given that um, in, in some polls there's the, the difference is as high as 20%. Difference between Conservatives um, and and Labour, but the Lib Dems have seen Mid Bedfordshire as a target, as one of their targets seats. Um, they thought they could win it from third place, um, as they did in Tiverton and Honiton and in North Shropshire. Um, they, as they usually do, make the argument that they're better placed for Conservative voters who may want to be defecting from the Conservatives. Uh, the view is it's a little bit less of a jump from Conservative to the Liberal Democrats. Now they make that argument. Um, in almost every by-election I've ever seen. Um, and in some places it's successful, like Tiverton and Honiton and North Shropshire and other places. Um, it's not. Now, the difficulty they have is that in mid-Bedfordshire, Labour uh, quite cleverly uh, commissioned a poll uh, that showed in the constituency, first Labour being ahead of the Tories and then most recently uh, being neck and neck at 29% with the Lib Dems trailing uh, on 22%. Um, and obviously... I don't know if it would be a shock if Labour were to win tonight, um, but it would certainly be a huge move from the general election. Uh, and joining us now on the show uh, is Chief Political Commentator for The Independent, John Rental, who has written this article. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, I can. Your article has sparked the entire theme of our show today. Um, and, and that's the <laughs> oh, wow. article of Vote Labour on Thursday and get a general election um, in January 2025. We've just spoken to a professor at politics at Queen Mary University who explained to us why it's possible for the Conservatives to push a general election all the way back to January 2025. But do you want to give folks a little bit around your thinking behind the article and why you think that if Labour were to win tonight, that a general election yeah. might be as far away as 2025? Well, because I mean, I think uh, if if Labour, especially if Labour win both uh, both by elections uh, tonight, that would suggest that the Conservatives are in a very very deep hole, uh, and that the situation is continuing to get worse for them rather than better. I mean, you know, Rishi Sunak was obviously hoping at the at the start of this year uh, to start to turn things round, uh, and unfortunately for him. You know the the conservatives' position in the in the polls. It stopped getting worse, but it didn't start it didn't start getting better. Mm -hmm. I mean, Labour has been on average ahead 
in, in the national opinion polls by 17 points for a very long time. Uh, and it's, it's, if anything, it's, it's crept up since the, uh, the, since the party conference season. I mean, Labour had a good conference. It was extremely boring. Nothing went wrong. Uh, the Conservatives had a bad conference. Uh, so if they if the Conservatives lose these two by-elections, that means uh, um, mm. it's postponing the the chances of, of starting to turn things around. I mean, there's still a year to go until October, which would be the ideal time for them to yeah. have the general election. But if things don't start to pick up uh, soon, then mm. uh, I think, you know, Rishi Sunak might just decide uh, we're going to lose anyway. So I'll be prime minister for as long as I can be, uh, which yeah. in law as you were talking about, uh, is uh, is January 2025. Now, I, I think it's interesting. You talked about party conference season. I was at Labour Party conference um, and it did feel different to me. It felt like a party conference of a party about to go into government. Uh, and that's not just yeah. the behaviour of the MPs, but it felt like much of industry, much of the lobbying world was behaving as if this is the next party of government. And, and there's a real palpable sense of that on conference floor. Whereas I heard Conservative Party was very downbeat and, and quiet in, in response. Yeah. And I think we've seen that bump. Uh, I thought Keir's speech was the best I've seen him give at, at a party conference. Um, and, and so that will have had an effect. Um, oh, we've just lost John. So we're going to try and get him back. But like I was saying, uh, I was at the party conference season uh, and... It, it, it definitely did feel different. I mean, Owen Jones did did a did a brilliant video of the Conservative Party conference, um, where he explores uh, and talks to different people and kind of touches on the theme. And I think what was most striking about his video um, was the fact uh, of how quiet Conservative Party co conference is. John, we've got you back. One of the thing I want. I'm sorry about that. I'm no, it's <laughs> okay. One of the thing I wanted to ask you was obviously I've talked about party conference and how it felt in Labour. Um, but let, I mean, we shouldn't underestimate how big of a swing it would be if they were if Labour are to win tonight, because these are two safe conservative seats. Uh, yes, they, uh, that's right. But uh, if you look at the Labour result in Selby, Selby and Ainston, which is a, a very safe Tory seat in Yorkshire, uh, that was in that was in July. Um, Labour won that on a twenty four percent swing. I mean, that is the second highest. Um, swing that Labour has ever achieved against mm -hmm. the Conservatives. Um, I mean, I think there was one. There was one uh, swing higher. I think it's Dudley West uh, when Tony Blair was uh, opposition leader. Um, but the Selby swing was uh, was was the second best that Labour's ever done. Uh, if that happens again, uh, then they can win Tamworth and uh, uh, Midbeds as well. But I mean, Midbeds is complicated because obviously, if the opposition vote is split, then the then the Tories can can mm. win it by a fluke. But that wouldn't really tell us anything about the popularity of the yeah. Tory government. So, uh, can you give us a sense? I mean, you'll obviously have lots of sources. You'll be talking to lots of Conservatives in Westminster. What's the mood like? Are they just expecting a hammering, or do they think you know there's a year to well, go? We might be able to fight this back. They, they, there's a bit of that. I mean, they are surprisingly, uh, surprisingly cheerful uh, <laughs> conservatives um, around uh, around Westminster, and actually, even in the party conference, I thought uh, uh, people were. Uh, I mean, conser conservatives were uh, were. I mean, they obviously expect. They think losing is po probably the most likely outcome, but they haven't given up yet. Mm -hmm. uh, they think they can still they can still turn it around. But what you know, what I was saying in that article was. 
you know time is time is running out for them yeah and one of the one of the questions that we've had is and one of the things that i've heard is it's unlikely for them to go beyond may 2024 because they don't want to get a hammering in a local election and then essentially try to rebuild the campaign from a poor result in in a local election in may do you think that's possible no, I, I mean I don't. I, I I think the chances of them being in a fit fit, fit state to win a general election by by May mm. are, are are remote now. I mean I think I, I think time is is running out. I think October is 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 still their main uh, their main hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know there is a year to go. The economy the, the economy could well be improving over the uh, over the year. And I I think I think the opinion polls will narrow, mm. uh, but. Uh, they'll be narrowing from from a very strong Labour position, and uh, there's a long, long way to go. And I think you know there's an awful, there's an awful lot of things that are still going wrong for the Conservatives. I mean, the, you know the, the, the Peter Bone uh, business. You know, yet another Tory yeah. MP having having a problem with uh, with standards and, uh, and and ethics. He's been found guilty of bullying yeah. uh, a member of staff. Uh, you know that means another by-election. I mean, and and the thing is, every time one of these these scandals happened uh, mm-hmm. because of the recall law um not only does does do the conservatives suffer the embarrassment of having having an mp found uh, found guilty of, of wrongdoing of some kind they then have to go through a by-election and lose yeah. it and that just sort of and that was going to be that was going to be one of my questions to you because you do make that point very well in in the article is that you know we've had a bunch of mps investigated for various different things and then by elections um we've got the two yeah. now we, you said blackpool south and wellingborough could this yeah. could this not be seen as death by a thousand cuts for the Conservatives? Just loss after <laughs> well, loss after could, loss. Well, absolutely. That's my that's my point. I mean, it does does begin to feel like that. It feels very much like the 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 the, the mood in, uh, in, in of the Conservative government in before the 1997 election, when you know the Conservative MPs were falling like nine pins. They you know various financial and sexual scandals, um, and it felt like a sort of dying. Mm-hmm. A dying Tory government, and people that gave up on it, and and you know then the economy was doing quite well under John Major, uh, but the Conservative people have just given up on the Conservatives. Mm. Uh, I think I mean Rishi Sunak's got a bit more hope, I think, in that people. I I think there are, you know there is some popularity there. People yeah. people do was quite gonna, like him. They that, think he's competent. That was going to be my next question to you, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this um, because I mean to be honest, Rishi inherited a mess when he came in following yeah. Liz Truss. Um, he is outperforming his party in the opinion polls. Um, obviously, much further behind to Starmer. What's your sense around yeah. around Rishi as a potential campaigner? Obviously, you know, campaigning for leadership when no one else is running against you is one thing. Going to the country against, <laughs> uh, um, uh, you know, in a general election is, is another thing. What's your sense of what we've seen so far of what we can expect from Rishi the campaigner? I mean, I know too well how good uh, Boris was, but how how will Rishi fare? Yeah, well, I mean, Rishi Rishi Sunak seemed to be quite a good campaigner. I thought in the in the Tory leadership election and. You know he's very popular as chancellor, but he seems to have squandered a lot of that. And you know, as you point out, he was more popular than than his party. He still is a bit more popular than his party, but the but the advantage has been eroded. I mean, his the 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 the, the sort of uh, the reputational damage uh, done to the Conservative Party is spread to him personally. Um, and so instead of him pulling the Tory Party up, the Tory mm-hmm. the Tory Party's pulled him down. Uh, and I think that's that's his problem. I think it's a, it, it, in many ways it's a shame, it's a human tragedy because I think you know Rishi Sunak has done a good job in many ways. Mm-hmm. He, he's he's 
he's stabilized the ship after after the Liz Trust disaster. Uh, and yet he's getting no credit for it because people think the Tory party is just a yeah. just a shambles. And just penultimate question, I've only got a couple more for you. Um I hope you can stay with us for these is um you've mentioned the economy, I think. What needs to change for Rishi to have a chance on polling day? I think look the general consensus from Tim from yourself from even my my view is if if everything goes the way it's going, we're looking at a Labour government. But what needs to change yeah. in order for that to change? Well, I think if the economy uh, bounces back more sharply than expected and people suddenly start to feel better off, uh, I think it could have a different effect from uh, from the position in, in 1997. Because then I think there was a sense, a real sense, that John Major was exhausted, his government was exhausted and worn out, and they were divided on Europe. But uh, if the economy... It does better than than people expect, then I think people aren't going to say, oh, well, we can afford to have a Labour government. People might start to ask themselves, you know, can we afford a Labour government? You know, I'm just starting to feel better off, just starting to to, 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 to get my finances in order. And yet this, you know, this Labour government might come in and, and impose all sorts of uh, uh, taxes and, and, and costs of achieving its climate change ambitions. Uh, I think I think Rishi Sunak's shift on climate change, on net zero, uh, to a more pragmatic stance, as he called it, I think that could pay him dividends if uh, if things fall right for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I I just want to I want to get your thoughts on Keir Starmer. I you know it's it's Keir is a difficult one I think because some of his critics just say he's another Tony Blair. I don't see that. I don't see the comparisons at all, really. With with, with <laughs> he's Tony. not very like Tony Blair. Is no, he? I, I mean for one, I mean. Uh, Tony, I, th- I thought was a much better communicator. Now, Keir has 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 led the party Absolutely. as a as a uh, technically, I think, quite well. But um, as as a communicator, uh, I think I think Tony Blair was much better, and therefore better as a, as a campaigner in a general election. What are your senses um, as it pertains uh, to Sir Keir Starmer? I think I think you're, you've put your finger on it there. I think Keir Starmer's not a not a strong campaigner, and I think. I, th- I think Rishi Sunak uh, is. The question is whether people have just given up on Rishi Sunak and decided that he's hopelessly out of touch, rich uh, guy who likes uh, likes flying around in helicopters. I mean, I do, I do think there's a sort of, it, it, we may have passed the point of no return on that. But um, on the other hand, I think he can still, he's a much better communicator than, uh, than Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer admitted after the uh, Labour leadership election when he, when he got the job that he hated, uh, he hated campaigning uh among the party members i mean he said it was because he didn't like going against you know other mm. labor uh, other labor colleagues but i mean actually you just get a sense from him that you know he's not happy on the campaign trail he's not happy it's not where he feels with, most with, comfortable with, with people shaking hands and sort of kissing babies and all the rest of it whereas mm. actually i think rishi sunak rather enjoys all that and i think i think that will be fascinating to watch in mm. the election campaign Keir has improved though I, th- I what did you think of his conference speech because i thought his conference speech was oh, yeah. probably the better ones that one of the ones i've heard oh it was uh yeah it was a very it was a very good conference speech it was mm-hmm. it, it, i'm afraid it was a bit dull uh, <laughs> i mean you know i mean you i mean you can't i you always know, I, was... john you get give me a sense of this because everyone at conference disagreed i always think they're too long all of them not just his they're far too long right too long. i hate conference i hate conference speeches as, as, a, as a as a way i'm of, bored 15 <laughs> minutes in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just, I just, I just yearn for the day when you get a uh, 
yeah. a, a party leader who, who who gets up and gives a five minute speech. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I, um, I, uh, I I wasn't I wasn't in the actual room itself. I was at the back, um, which tells you how relevant I am these days. But um, <laughs> <laughs> within like fifteen minutes, I was putting myself in the space of listen. If I'm a if I'm not a Labour voter or a Conservative voter, yeah. and I'm just watching on. I think I've changed the channel 10 minutes in, not because of what no, they're no, doing is bad, it's just too long. It was just, and, and it wasn't interesting enough. Mm. I mean, he didn't have an argument. I mean, the thing about Tony Blair is he always had an argument and he was trying to persuade a reluctant party uh, of what he believed and why he believed it and why they had to accept it. And they didn't like mm -hmm. it, but they, but they knew they would have to have to agree to it. And that was, so there was a drama and a tension. Mm. Uh, and he was, and he was. Yeah, he was I, I just think he was just a gifted orator as well. Um, was, and, in, and in a league of in a league of his own. But I mean, actually, I mean, you know, Rishi Sunak's not 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 a Tony Blair either. But and and his speech was was far too long as well. But I do remember listening to his speech all the way through. I mean, and it held my attention because he was actually mm. he was actually arguing, he was making a case, he was explaining why HS2 was a was a bad investment and why he was going to cancel it. And I thought it was I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was persuasive. I actually mm. agreed with that bit. And he was explaining why he wanted to uh, to to stop young people ever yeah. taking up smoking and all that. You know, I mean, I thought, you know, whereas whereas Keir Starmer was was much more sort of general waffle and rhetoric and just sort of um, motherhood and apple pie, really. Motherhood and apple pie, I like that. Um, so, uh, John, before I let you go, last one. Um, two two quick predictions from yourself. If Labour win tonight, when's yeah. the next general election? <laughs> well, I do wonder about about January 2025. I, I think, I mean, in a way, I mean, Rishi, Rishi Sunak will want to overtake um, Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. I think to do that, he has to he has to get get as far as December. At least, so I think, I think it'll either be October or December next year. And if Labour lose tonight, when do you think it'll be? Does that change? Well, it depends why they lose, um, and it depends what the what the swing is, uh, mm. and it depends which, which you know if they lose, if they fail to win Tamworth, then that means they've got a they've they've got a much lower swing than they got in Selby, and that you know I think you could turn I mean the Conservatives could turn that round into a, in, into a story about how they're they're coming back, how they're sort of how they're advancing against against Labour. Uh, Mid-Bedfordshire, I think, tells us absolutely nothing because that just depends on how the votes split between Labour and the Lib Dems. Mm. It's just going to it's just going to depend on 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 a statistical um, uh, sort of random chance. Right. Thank you so much. That's Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, John Rental, uh, whose article has sparked our discussion today. John, thanks so much. I hope to have you on next year and we'll see what happens. Thank you so much uh, Thank you. to John. So we've been talking and I think John quite um, clearly put about his view as to why he thinks um, there will be uh, a general election in 2025 if um, Labour are successful uh, today. But I think one of the things that I'm taking away from today, I mean, I walked into the studio today thinking fairly confidently that there was going to be a general election in May 2024. I'm a lot less confident of that now uh, that I've heard from Tim and I've heard from John. Um, and I guess that's part of a good politics show is my, my mind has been not changed, but influenced, I think. Um, and so I think it's something to keep an eye on. And tonight we will know you might be listening to this as the results have already come out. So you will you will have a better sense if you're listening to this on demand as to what's happened and um 
if if the Liberal Democrats have won, you might already know what the stunt is, which has been the conversation in our studio as to, you know, is it going to be a brick wall they're going to break through? Is it going to be a door they smash? Is it going to be some hay? Who knows? Uh, but if they're successful, I guarantee you they've got a stunt in their back pocket. Um, and so you'll know better than us. But I think it is a conversation that's going to continue to grow over the next uh, couple of weeks. Um I want to go to the Vox Pop this week. As you know, it's one of my favorite parts of the show. It doesn't actually have to do with anything to do with elections this week. As you will have seen, uh, Justice Secretary Alex Chalk has announced that prison sentences under a year will be scrapped for most criminals. Uh, and I wanted to know whether you agree with that policy or not. So our wonderful producers went out into central London to find out what people think of this policy. It kind of depends on the crime, I think. But as long as they're set up to do something to make it better, do better for themselves... Um, like community service like could potentially be better but I do think it depends on the crime really. I think it depends on what the sentence is for. If it's something that's a violent crime then no, should be in prison but maybe for lesser crimes. Yeah I think if there's, as long as there's some form of restriction there and there's a good system that's monitored I don't see why it would be an issue. I feel like if you've done something bad enough to go to prison, you shouldn't just get away with community service, you should go to prison. I think it makes sense. I think if you're being uh, like sentenced to something for under a year, it's going to be such a like a minimal crime. I think prisons also affect your life in the longevity. So if you are having community service, I think there's a higher likelihood you'll be able to become back like re-established into the community. So I think it's, it's totally the right way to go. There you go. Uh, oh, pretty much uh, overwhelming support for the, the policy bar one. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being on the show today. Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University, Councillor Nabila Maulana, Labour Councillor in Sheffield and Chair of Young Labour, and John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, whose article has sparked the discussions. You can catch us on all the good socials, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at politicsfubar. I will join you next week. You can listen back on all of our programs online. Salams. <laughs>